Yes, please turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Past few weeks, my wife and I have been enjoying watching Division NCAA Division I women's volleyball. The Big Ten is just loaded with these nationally ranked teams, and um, they are really fun to watch. And as with most sports, one gets accustomed to seeing close calls that, with today's technology, are subject to challenges and reviews. And um, it's remarkable to me how many times in the course of a volleyball match, a hitter will spike a ball and uh, spike it, and it will go long and out of bounds. And these defending blockers, I mean, they just break into their, their celebration dance, you know, their high-fiving and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, but the hitter turns to their coach and signals ball off the fingertips, you know, is touched. And so the coach then appeals to the referee for a challenge. And as he does, these blockers that knew the ball went out of bounds, they're going... You know, they're just utterly in shock and disbelief appealing to this referee in their outrage over such an inconceivable justice. And so the game stops, and then we are subject to no less than probably 10, 15 super slow-motion replays with every conceivable angle zoomed into, you know, like within a micron of the girl's fingernails, and then it's paused, and then they zoom in even further, you know, now we're down to the molecular structure of their epidermis, and, you know, even someone like me, and I have, you don't know this, but I I have progressive multi- um, focal lenses, so I'm going like this and all the time, and somebody like me, I could even, even I can clearly see that the ball hit the blocker's fingers, bent their hands back, and uh, all this dramatic show of disbelief, you know, it now seems comical. Um, And since the violation is now so obvious, it's also clear that the individual who's being judged is no longer the player. The one being judged is the judge himself, the referee. In Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, Paul effectually calls a foul. And in doing so, he ruffles some feathers and he says... Not all Jews are really Jews. Not all who claim to be God's people are really God's people. There are self-righteous hypocrites out there. And perhaps even more provocative than that, Paul says, there are some Gentiles who, even though they are not circumcised, they may actually be Jews. And the Jews with whom Paul has been, you know, he's just been butting heads with them for years, they're going, What? 
on, you know, the, the, are you serious? And so Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, um, is the proverbial, in this section, the, uh, the proverbial ruling on the field is being challenged. And, and I believe one way to approach this rather difficult text is to conceive of it, <laughs> bear with me here, as a slow motion, zoomed in, instant replay. The call is hypocrisy. The call is put no confidence in the flesh. The, the call is just because there is belief in one God, without Christ there is no Salvation, morality, without faith in Christ, there's no salvation. Knowledge of the Bible without Christ, there's no salvation. Circumcision without Christ, there's no salvation. And these Jews are stunned. They, they, they take exception. You're, you're calling us hypocrites. You're calling into question our status as the chosen people of God and to this, Paul says, yes, I am. Yes, I am. So the ruling on the field is under review. And uh, God willing, I'm going to walk us through a slow motion, imaginary conversation that begins, that begins to bring into focus, I think, both the futile and the darkened hearts that would challenge the faithfulness and justice of God. It brings into focus and puts on clear display the reality that one ought to not put any confidence in the flesh. So, I want to invite you to follow along. I'm going to read Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And um, if you would and you're able, please stand. Let's, um, in honor of God's word, and give our attention. As uh, the Apostle Paul writes, well, what then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much, in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Your word causes us to tremble. Sometimes your word causes us to scratch our heads. But Lord, we do trust that faith comes through hearing 
hearing through the word of Christ. We trust that your word is sufficient to make us wise unto salvation. We trust that it is in your word that we have the most objective, true disclosure of who you are. And so we ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray for your active presence, your active, dynamic power to work among us, within us, in such a way that you are glorified. You are glorified in us today. That you are glorified among us today. That you would communicate to us, Lord, the very truth that ought to unite us. That there is nothing in our flesh, nothing about us that we can put confidence in to make us right with you. And Lord, this levels the playing field for us. It puts us all in the same place of needing a Savior. It puts us in the same place of needing you to work in our lives and make us new from the inside out. So we ask that you would do this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a trusted evangelical leader who has made the claim that really the key to understanding our current cultural confusion, um, he he says the key to this is acknowledging the, the powerful temptation and really the insistence in our world today of defining love, defining love as being made much of. We do this, he says, because the sinful heart always wants to be flattered, petted, pampered, complimented, and catered to, always. And so in our day, he goes on, this this diseased definition of love has metastasized into a cultural ideology that actually drives all current Identity politics. In other words, if you refuse to make much of someone's identity badges, namely their blackness or their victimness or their genderness or their whatever other intersectionality badges, then you, if you refuse to acknowledge that and celebrate that, and affirm that, then you, by definition, do not love them. In fact, if you do not make much of their identity, you don't love them, you actually hate them. In Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, Paul, he he went plowing smack dab into the middle of such a minefield. Rather than making much of these Jews, he he made what to them was this unloving charge that their Jewishness had nothing to do whether or not they were true children of God. Shock! Now the way Paul works out his response to that charge, that that reaction in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it's challenging. He, He launches into what seems to be an imaginary dialogue 
with someone who would take issue with his unloving claim. And in this imaginary conversation, these, these offended Jews assert the most astonishing defense. They put the blame for their disingenuous spirituality on God. It's God's fault. God's the one who's to blame. And, and Paul, he, he just cries foul on that, right? And they react in shock and disbelief and outrage. And then, then they go so far as to charge God with unfaithfulness and injustice. The judge now is the one being judged. And, and loved ones, such is the crazy-making of sin. Before we laugh, before we find their shock and outrage comedic, point our fingers at them with our smug indignation, we may want to pause and see if there may be some of the same inordinate confidence in our flesh. You see, Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 is an illustration of what's wrong with that. It, it just proves the point that one ought to have no confidence in the flesh. And I believe it's also an illustration of Paul's claim in chapter 1 verses 21 to 22 where he writes, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, and, and here is the problem in a nutshell, they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's what this is. It's, it's an expression of sin just tangling and twisting and messing up people's thought process. To, to be, out, out of all of the idolatrous people groups on earth, the to be the objects of God's sovereign choice, to share in God's promises to Abraham, to be carefully and providentially selected and protected, to be named, sustained, to own a unique place in God's redemptive plan, to steward the very prophetic pointers in the Old Testament to the sin-atoning Messiah, and then, and then be declared guilty and perishing in unbelief. That is truly a shocking thing. But for these people then to shift the blame for all of that, to shift the blame for their sin and their unbelief onto God, that is insane. Sin is insane. It, it leaves us as one commentator eloquently puts it, with the gas tank of our hearts empty and the gas cap of our minds welded shut. Loved ones, if there is one clear claim in this text, besides put no confidence in the flesh, it is God deserves no blame for our sin and our unbelief. And you may ask, well, so like how could that ever happen? How could anybody do such an audacious thing as to blame God for sin and unbelief? How could, 
How could that possibly be? And according to Romans 1, the presence of sin tangles thoughts with futility. Sin turns hearts dark. Sin makes people fools who would attempt to judge the judge with charges of unfaithfulness and injustice. So let's, let's just walk our way through chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And first of all, consider how the insanity of sin charges God with unfaithfulness. Notice that chapter 3, verse 1 suggests that somebody's pushing back. They're pushing back on Paul's assertion that the Jews are in need of the supernatural, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit as much as anybody else. Verses 1 and 2. Then, what advantage has the Jew? Or, what's the value of circumcision? And Paul would answer, Lots, much, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But the problem, the problem is that in spite of being entrusted with the oracles of God, the entire message of the Old Testament, in spite of the fact that all of Moses and the prophets point to the necessity of a suffering, crucified Messiah, Messiah, the, the Jews have not turn to him. They have not looked to him. They've put their confidence in the flesh. So Paul says, you haven't entrusted yourselves to him. Being stewards of God's word has done nothing to change your hearts. The Old Testament covenant sign of circumcision has done nothing to change your hearts. And that's because true heart change is only possible in Jesus. It is a work of grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, and Him, you as a people, have categorically rejected. And right there, the Jews take issue. (laughs) They take issue with the ruling on the field. Verse 3. Well, what if some were unfaithful? And the next phrase indicates what's so very deeply flawed in their thought process. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Because that's what they think. That's what's going on in their heads. Their faithlessness, it nullifies the faithfulness of God. Does their faithlessness really nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, the Jews are defending their sin. They're defending their unbelief by accusing God of being the one who's unfaithful. They're accusing God of failing to keep his promises. They're accusing God of being the one who's really behind all of this problem. Come on, Paul! The reason there are Jews who are faithless, it's because God hasn't come through. God is the unfaithful one. God is the one who cannot be trusted. Our unbelief, our unbelief is evidence that God's promise to Abraham has failed. And we're living proof that it is God. It's not us. Not us. It's not us that are untrue. It's God who is not true. So there you have it. Our unfaithfulness nullifies 
the faithfulness of God. Our unbelief is God's fault. And to this, Paul says, rather emphatically, in verse 4, by no means, by no means. What's wrong with you people? Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. I mean, there are, in fact, some Jewish believers. But, but even if there were no Jewish believers, all of them, each and every one of them were untrue, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. So, Paul concedes, okay, there are at least some faithful believing Jews. But you know what? <laughs> that is totally besides the point. Even if they were all unfaithful, all unbelieving, God's word is still true. God's word is still true. God is still faithful to his covenant with Israel in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to return to this point later on, Romans chapter 9. But here he gets a little bit jacked up. Um, and so he lands hard on this fact. In, in, in spite of the unbelief of most Jews... God is innocent of these insane charges of unfaithfulness. God's righteous. He is faithful, righteous, because his judgment and wrath against unbelievers, against sin, displays his glory. And so Paul drops into a very brief, almost obscure, supporting argument based on Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 51. It's a familiar text because it is the prayer of repentance, confession, prayer of faith of King David after his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband. In that verse he says, he prays, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. So, David sinned, committed adultery, committed murder. God's not to blame for his judgment and wrath against David's unfaithfulness. David is to blame. David is the one who sinned against God. David's sin makes God's judgment of David an expression of God's faithfulness, faithfulness to God's glory. In judging David, God's being true, faithful to his own nature, as well as faithful to upholding his covenant. Can you think of situations when you have felt the impossible it's just felt it impossible to resist temptation. You felt it was impossible to resist the impulse to sin. And have you, with some clarity of thinking now, <laughs> recognized in that moment, you know, I really want to do this. I really want to sin. I know it's wrong. At one level, I don't want to commit this sin. But at another level, I really do want to commit this sin. And in your mind, you're thinking, I want what I don't want. And 
and, and I, I don't want what I do want. And why? why? Why doesn't God help me? Why doesn't God change me? God, you know my frame. You know my makeup. You know my vulnerabilities. You know my inabilities. You know my situation. You know my circumstances. I pray and I pray and you give me this, this job, this stuff stinks and this this spouse that's so difficult to live with and these kids that are impossible sometimes you have thrown all these limitations at me and your word says what you've made crooked who can make straight and in that moment in that moment in your thought process is it not a little step to blame God for not coming through it's it's just a little step God, you're the one. You're the one that didn't come through. Where's your promise for help? Where are you in this? It's not a big jump, is it, to blame God for being unfaithful, to blame God for being untrue, to blame God for our sin. Are we justified in charging him with unfairness, unfaithfulness, being untrustworthy? We're not so different, are we, than these Jews? Now, of course, these Jews had their advantages. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, the revelation of God's glory, of God's character, his righteousness, his wrath, God's promises and his purpose. In particular, they've been entrusted with this revelation of his saving purpose in the person and work of the Messiah, the Christ. And if these Jews are unbelieving and they do not turn and entrust themselves to Jesus as the Christ, then their beef against God is not valid. Their charge that it is God who is faithless, it's God who can't be trusted, it's God whose promises have failed, it's God who's unrighteous. <laughs> What's wrong with these people? What's wrong with us? When God judges the sins of people, including Jews, including David, the man after his own heart, God's faithfulness is vindicated, not invalidated. And the ruling on the field stands. Everything's solved. Not with these people. Out comes another challenge flag. Because the insanity of sin not only charges God with unfaithfulness, it charges God with injustice. He's not just untrustworthy, he's wrong. <laughs> Look at verse 5. But, these are the Jews again, kind of hard to know where the conversation, you know, is one and going back and forth to the other. But, but these are the Jews. Paul, Paul but, but, but just think of this. If our unrighteousness, as you say, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Well, here's what we say. <laughs> that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. 
And then Paul, in this little parenthesis, adds, you know, just so that you're all clear, this, this is the way human people talk. This is not the way, this is not my point. This is, this is just the human, <laughs> this is the craziness of human argument. So in other words, if our sin, just like David's sin, if, if our unrighteousness is an occasion for God to magnify the glories of his righteousness, well then, then here's the logic of it. When God judges us, it's an occasion for him to fulfill his purpose of displaying the glory of his wrath. This is awesome. We are simply, when we're sinning, we are just simply instruments in God's hand, fulfilling the purpose of his righteousness. And therefore, God would be unjust in condemning us. That wouldn't be right. How could he condemn us for unbelief when our unbelief is the very thing that glorifies his wrath? How could he? He'd be sinning if he punished us. For our sin. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. To, and, to, and to this sad display of crazy making, Paul replies in verse 6, By no means. For then how could God judge the world? And, and then just when you thought that sin could not get more insane, there's verse 7. But if... Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? <laughs> as some people slanderously charge us with saying, Paul says. So if I lie, if, and, and if I lie and if my lying magnifies the glory of God's righteousness, oh, can't you see how much good my lying does? I mean, we should lie more. We should lie and lie and lie because we should be excused when we sin. We should get a pass when we sin. And then we would find ourselves shocked when high-profile Professing Christians fall into scandalous sins. I mean, isn't that, isn't that where this trajectory of this kind of thought process goes? It's, it starts there. Justifying ourselves. Blaming God. It's his fault. In fact, it's, it's such a good thing when we sin. He gets more glory. More, more wrath, more mercy, whatever it is. I mean, it is crazy-making. It's not a jump, a big jump, to think, oh, sinning's okay then. One commentator observes, if this, he's talking about the justification going on in, for sin in verses 5 through 8. If this sounds like a word game, it's because it is. This is the thought process. It's so tangled. It's, this kind of reasoning is so futile. The heart that speaks this way is so darkened that one may only conclude with Paul at the end of verse 8, 
their condemnation is just. Ruling on the field stands, case closed. God deserves none of the blame for our sin and unbelief. And therein is proved the truth that you think we can really put confidence in the flesh? There's anything that we could put confidence, our own thought process, our own reasoning (laughs) apart from desperate humility and crying out to the Lord for a new work, a a new heart. And so, it's helpful, I think, right now to, to just remind ourselves, why did Paul write this letter again? What was the occasion? What was his aim and purpose in sending this letter to the church in Rome? And it was, if you recall, as Ryan pointed us to in that very introductory sermon, it was to build unity and to garner support for mission. You got a church with... Got a church with with Jews and Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, and you know, how do you bring unity out of that? You know, these people, especially with Jews who are, you know, got their identity thing going on. Um, and, and how do you get these people together to get any traction for mission? And how does this provocative little rant here accomplish that? Accomplish unity, accomplish support for mission. I mean, I, you know, I get the sense, I was talking about this with someone yesterday, you get the sense that Paul's been kind of rehearsing this argument over and over and over with, with the Jews in his head for years. I mean, this, this, this is not a new deal. He, he he's been, he's lives this, and uh, you get the sense the way he shapes these eight verses that he's, <laughs> you know, it's got him irritated. You know, he, he, when he goes there, it just brings him right back into the reality of this. And you get the sense that perhaps, you know, he, he might just be laying awake at bed at night, rehearsing his mind. He'll say, now here's their stupid objection. Here's how I'd answer. And then they say this, and then I think that. And, you know, back and forth. And um, how does drawing attention to this well-worn debate that Paul's been carrying on with these people for years, how does this engender unity between them and their Gentile counterparts. And, I, and again, I think it's, it's, it makes me mindful. <laughs> you know, I'm a sports fan, so you know, here you got all these, these sports fans that are rooting for their different teams, and they squab- you know, you're watching a game, and the bad call happens, and they squabble over who got the worst end of that officiating, and blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and that's, kind of, that's kind of where we're at here in the entire context of Romans 1.16 all the way through chapter 4, this is an expression of Paul's aim to just level the spiritual playing field. We are, we are no better than anybody else. As hard as it is to say that about Green Bay Packer fans and so forth. We are no better than anybody else. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This is a level playing field. We all need a savior. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, God shows no partiality for, and here's the reason, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Level playing field. This is what unites us, our need for a Savior. Chapter 3, verse 9. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we already charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Verse 23. All have sinned and are continually Ongoing, falling short of the glory of God. Verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. So we're all in this thing. None of us can put confidence in the flesh. No matter how privileged, no matter how advantaged we may have been. Paul is addressing Gentiles. It's interesting. He addresses Gentiles in chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, where he's talking about the, you know, our tangled up thoughts and futile thinking and, you know, how how messed up and insane sin makes us. And then, after addressing the Gentiles there, he applies that truth that he spoke about the Gentiles about the thinking of the the Jews in chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We all have the same problem. We all blame God for what we want and can't have. We all think hard thoughts about God when things don't go our way. We are all prone to conclude that God is deceitful, can't be trusted. On account of the presence of sin, we are all inclined to make insane judgments. And if it is the prideful demand to be made much of that divides us, that stirs up such brokenness in our world, then our only hope for unity and for peace is to humbly bow before the one who bore the guilt and shame of every person on the cross. Are you you and I competent to figure this stuff out? Serve as God's counselors? Do do we really think we know better how to solve the problem than he does? Will the molder say to the molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. as we sang earlier it's beholding the truth about who God is that slices through tangled thoughts, darkened hearts. We need to take long looks at the truth of who God is. And what about Paul's purpose to garner this support for mission? Well again, it's interesting that grammatically It seems apparent that everything that Paul writes from chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 25, it's all intended to demonstrate 
It's, it's all written to answer the question why he is so eager and earnest to preach the gospel to Jews and Greeks, believers and unbelievers who are in Rome. Remember that? I just, I just can't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to you. Here's why. Chapter 1, verse 16, all the way through 425. We all need this truth slicing through our sin that taints our thinking every day. So does every soul in our city. This is what should motivate us to be preachers and proclaimers and testifiers of the good news of the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verse 12 says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our world needs to know this truth. It needs to know this truth. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to empower us and help us. Father in heaven, I I want to pray particularly, especially in this moment for any and all who have been entertaining and mulling over tangled thoughts about you on account of hard things, on account of suffering, on account of frustrated longings and desires and unsatisfied soul thirst. A mind can go towards hard thoughts against you. Charge you with being unfaithful and untrustworthy. Charge you with with failing to keep your promises. Oh, you... You keep your promises to somebody else, but maybe not for me. Oh God, strengthen the hearts and souls of where that temptation is alive and throbbing right now. Pray that you would slice through that darkness. That that the, the Lord God who did not restrain himself from giving up his own son, but gave him up for us all. Is, is the fulfillment of every promise. How will he not also satisfy every hungry, thirsty heart with all that they need, keeping every promise? Assure by the power of your Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, bring assurance that you are a faithful, promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. You're worthy to be trusted, worthy to be praised. And Lord, for those, those lives, those hearts and souls today here who, who have, they're further down that path of futile thinking where they're justifying their sin, justifying their immorality, justifying it. And then, coming to the conclusion, well, that's just okay. 
That's just okay. That is not leading any place good. And I pray that, pray that you would arrest that thought process. And I pray that you would restrain that sinful inclination. And once again, O oh Lord, we put no confidence in the flesh. We humble ourselves before you and your holiness, and your wisdom, and your justice, and the glory of your righteousness. We humble ourselves before you. We look to you for, for who will deliver us from this wretchedness that resides in each one of us except a great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So together, unite us, Lord, in our passionate desire for Jesus. Unite us in our vision of this glorious gospel. Unite us, Lord, with such an, um, a sweet work of your spirit that you would fulfill the promise of Acts 1-8 and we would together be empowered to be your witnesses in our city, in our neighborhood, in this state, and all the way to the ends of the earth. God, please accomplish these things for the glory of your name.